Um, I mean, for the most part, no. I mean, we, we you know we're less than sixteen millimeters thick. We're, you know, the framework laptops actually, I think, 0.25 millimeters thicker than a thirteen-inch MacBook Pro, which is you know totally not repairable or upgradable. Um, and so we found that you know we could shave off fractions of millimeters. We really sacrificed repairability and upgradability, but it was pretty obviously the right thing to do to actually just go and socket things and use fasteners instead of adhesives. And the actual form factor trade-offs are really not not that dire, not even that significant. Um, and so when we look at choices that other OEMs are making, it oftentimes comes down to a kind of, uh, you know, cargo cult mentality, you know, this idea that we do this because it's the way it's been done, or we do this because it's what we've seen other brands, you know, often Apple do, um, without really thinking through like, is this necessary? Is this actually the right thing to do? Is this what consumers even want out of the products that we're making? Hey everybody, welcome back to What The Fix. I'm Jack Monahan, And I'm Paul Roberts. This is our third episode of What The Fix. And uh, as you know, every couple of weeks we're coming to you and talking about the latest news in the struggle for the right to repair. And uh, Jack and I are going to go through the news of the week for you. And uh, then we got a special interview coming up. So... Um, uh, stay tuned. We got some really interesting stuff to uh, to talk about. Jack, any um, before we get going, any housekeeping stuff we need to get out of the way? Uh, yeah. So this week is going to actually be a sneak peek for a fully uh, premium episode. We're giving you uh, just about five to seven minutes of the interview. But if you want to uh, see the whole thing, whether by video or audio, you're going to have to uh, subscribe on our Substack, which will be linked in uh, the episode description. That's right. And, uh, you know, obviously subscribing supports the work that Jack and I do and um, supports the uh, the conversation here around right to repair. It's, just a, it's getting to be a big, big issue. Um, so as we've done in past issues, uh, Jack and I are going to spend a couple minutes just uh, going through some of the news highlights from the past couple weeks and uh, talking about stories that matter or at least matter to us. Um, I'm going to start off this week uh, if that's okay with you, Jack. Of course. <laughs> um, and the story I'm going to highlight is one that has to do with a lawsuit that the uh, Software Freedom Conservancy brought against a smart television maker, Vizio. Uh, some of you may have Vizio smart TVs in your living room um, for violating the GNU uh, general public license, which is standard kind of open source um, uh, license. Uh, it's not copyright. They actually call it copyleft. Um, and it's a sort of a twist on copyright. And basically what it says is uh, under this license, you get all the rights to use this open source software. Um, you can modify it, copy it, bend it to your own purposes, use it in your own products. The condition is that any derivative works from that, anything you create using this open source software, you then have to give back to um, to the open source community. You have to make it available also under GNU public license and allow others to uh, benefit from your work. Um, and basically the lawsuit is uh, Software Freedom Conservancy suing really on behalf of Vizio television owners to say that Vizio has not abided by that, that they used GPL software in the basically the firmware that runs on their soft on their smart TVs, but have not given uh, the derivative works back to the community. And um, 
Software Freedom Conservancy has sued on behalf of those users saying, basically, you need to give that back to us so that we can uh, benefit from it, from the um, you know work that you've done uh, as stipulated in this GPL. Vizio's fighting this, um, and they basically, the, the, the first kind of uh, front in this battle, this legal battle, was for Vizio to try and move this from um, basically California State Superior Court uh, to a federal uh, court and saying, basically, uh, this isn't a contract dispute. This is really a copyright dispute, and therefore it needs to be handled in federal kind of copyright court. Um, and basically, the, uh, they lost that argument. So uh, uh, a um, federal judge ruled uh, last week that, nope, um, basically, the GNU public license is a, you know, has aspects of copyright in it, but it is also a contract. Um, that the, it is not purely a copyright agreement. It is also a contract and Vizio, uh, it appears that you kind of contractually agreed to do this and their, you know, soft, uh, software freedom conservancy is, is suing you for breach of that contract. And um, it's a really interesting case. And I think it's a really big case because needless to say, Vizio is not the only device maker out there that is leveraging GPL software uh, in their products and not giving the derivative works back to the public. Um, and so this case, even though it, as uh, uh, others have said, Kyle Weens and others is gonna take years to litigate as he's often do, has huge implications um, for the uh, for consumers um, as well as obviously for device makers and for the open source community and for the sort of you know smart Internet of Things communities. One of the really thing one of the things I really think is interesting about this and worth following from the sort of right to repair standpoint is part of the argument for that Software Freedom Conservancy is making is that if you when these companies don't restore don't return their derivative works basically to the public. What happens down the road when they decide to end of life or stop supporting these products is that the public is really left in the lurch, right? They don't have access to the software. They can't sort of pick it up and continue to maintain it, modify it um, and, and to suit their own needs. That could include developing patches. And then one of the purposes of this copy left um, license is to prevent that, to create this body of public public software, basically open source software that the community can then maintain for the long term. And I think that's going to be a really important issue as the Internet of Things basically ages and more and more companies go the kind of Sonos speaker route. That was kind of the famous case of, you know, just kind of end of lifing and bricking these smart products and leaving customers in the lurch. So this is kind of a canary in the coal mine for that whole conversation. And it's really interesting. Yeah, I was so unfamiliar with copyleft. Like I, I was, I had to Google it like yeah. as soon as I saw it because I had no idea. But for me, it just boils down to like, you know, people are on the hook for the like user licenses that they agree to. Like I, I like you know, every time you hit agree, like you're actually like signing a contract essentially. And so like it would be, it would just it's accountability at the end of the day for companies that they are essentially like creating a contract that they have to hold up to. And if this trend continues of them not, you know, holding up their end, then what does that mean for consumers? Does that mean that, you know, you get to buy, uh, you know, a product that 
when the software just like stops being patched like you don't have the ability to fix it yourself so you have to trash your tv and that's just like that's just your tv what happens when you know device makers start making toasters and microwaves and like ovens and cars um you know the implication which they already do yeah. right that 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 features upon us that's and right so if yeah. you're using you know open source software on a license like this then the reality is like there are a lot of stakes when it comes to the things that you own it might just be a tv right now but in co in case law it means way more for you know other appliances and things that you could possibly own right and software freedom conservancy really is taking a sort of ecosystem and public health i think a public health approach to this which is like well the way you avoid that dystopian future where um as one kind of philosopher put it um everything's broken but nobody knows why um, is to have this, uh, the software basically be in the public domain and allow the, you know, hundreds of thousands of customers out there, users to maintain it themselves when the company has decided, you know, made a business decision basically to stop doing that, um, or gone out of business, right? Um, they, they, they're just not even a, a going concern anymore. So yeah, super interesting case. Jack. Well, this makes me think of like all the things in my life that I actually don't know how to repair. But I will say the first the first thing I ever like learned how to repair, or, like wanted to repair was like an Xbox when I was in middle school. I didn't have the money to, you know, I'd, I'd gotten an Xbox. Um, it was broken and I was like, well, you know, I got to fix this thing because I don't have the money to buy another one. So I um, ended up doing that. But what I stumbled upon this past week was a uh, story about a UK based organization that's basically just kind of like crowdsourcing, trading and swapping games. Um, and like you can, you know, you can trade stuff from like the 80s. Paul, there's pinball machines um, if you want that shipped overseas. Oh, man. Okay. And arcade games. But yeah, so there's like, you know, any range of stuff. But what I thought was interesting. I'm a big pinball fanatic just for just on. That's why Jackson. Need to know. Need to know. Yes. Um, yeah, need to know. Big pinball. So the yeah. what I thought was interesting was like a lot of times the stories that we're looking at and the stories that people are pushing about right to repair are really about like, you know, technocratic solutions of like, oh, this expert decided that like, you know, this is the right way to approach right to repair. Like, you know, it's logistics this and technical that. But in reality, like a lot of this translates to like, you know, what, what are people doing? What are they doing socially? Like, are they buying more things? This has to do with consumption and ultimately like community. And so I thought it was really interesting to see more communities popping up of, you know, recycling, reusing stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of the things that, you know, in some ways the Internet is perfect for this, right, because it's easy to assemble, you know, communities of, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of users from all over the place to share information and also but just to trade stuff and exchange stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's um, and, and gaming is obviously huge generator of potentially e-waste, right? How many gaming For consoles sure. are there in homes and, you know, probably three or four generations of those gaming consoles, right? But they still have useful, useful lives. They still have games that go with them. And like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a type of thing where, um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of potential yeah. there. Okay. Um, my second story for our news roundup um, is the ongoing conversation uh, about Apple and their uh, self-service repair program. Um, Apple is unmatched in its ability to generate uh, dispute, conversation, uh, debate, and uh, this is a good example of it. So they announced their self-service repair program back in November. Uh, we didn't hear much about it. And then um, two or three weeks ago, they finally kind of pulled the, um, pulled the covers off of it. 
And um, since then, there's been a lot of debate about, you know, how how real is this program? Um, you know, in some ways, they're making you buy parts and tools from them. It's OEM only uh, and et cetera, et cetera. But as Kyle Weens pointed out, you know, they're making service manuals available. They're doing a lot of stuff that previously they refused to do, which is all great. One of the big disputes this week, and it, it comes from an article The Verge did um, talking about um, one part of this program, which is that if you want to under the self-service repair program, you can order basically a mini Apple, you know, iPhone repair shop, um, which they will send to you um, for, I think it's a $75, you know, payment or something. Um, and it's like an 80 pound box of just tools and battery presses and special suction cups and jigs and stuff. Kyle Weens talked about this in our last uh, Fight to Repair. Uh, I mean, in our last What the Fix podcast. Um, and so there's a big sort of debate about whether this is a good thing or whether actually this is sort of overkill and maybe actually an effort to sort of dissuade people um, from doing self-repair. Um, and so um, I know Lewis Rossman has, has weighed in on this, who is, um, you know, sort of the uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi of the right to repair movement in some ways, um, and sort of said, you know, you got to give Apple a break. You know, they're, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to make it sort of dummy proof. They're giving you all the tools, perfect tools and, and equipment that you need to do the repair, even if you have no clue what you're doing, which is definitely true. Um, and as Kyle said, like, wow, you know, getting your hands on a lot of these tools, you know, we've been, we've been trying to get our hands on these tools for a long time. So for them to ship them all to you is kind of special. Um, I'm sort of torn on it. I think on the one hand, um, you know, obviously, it's a good development that Apple is enabling customers to repair their own devices. On the other hand, I do feel like the way they're doing this kind of plays into a larger narrative from the company that repair is something that is not easy, that requires very, very specialized tools and skills and kind of like you know, don't try this at home. Um, and, you know, so the the 80 pound box of tools that, you know, you've got a week to make the repair. And if you don't get the tools back, headed back to Apple after that week, you know, you're on the hook for 12 or $1,300 or whatever the replacement cost of all the tools is. Um, you know, that's a pretty... That, that that's a pretty those are pretty big stakes for somebody who is maybe just looking to do a simple battery repair screen repair you know uh, start button repair um yes they've got all the tools but the you know small print on this agreement to get this uh mini tool shop sent to you is such that you could certainly see it dissuading people um and i think the better message is probably the message that like groups like iFixit or companies like iFixit do, which is like, hey, repair isn't, you know, it's something everyone can do. You know, it, it doesn't, it's not big and scary and expensive. Um, it's something that you can do with some simple parts um, and know how, watch this YouTube video, do it yourself. And I think that's sort of, as we want to make repair kind of more a part of just people's thinking, um, I think that's the attitude rather than like, well, if you want to repair you know, here's 80 pounds of tools and a $1,300 deposit, you know, good luck. Um, so, so that's my take on the tools. I think, um, I think, uh, you know, Apple being more hospitable to owner repair is good. And yet I think this part of their program is, you know, reinforces a 
argument that is basically anti-repair that they've been making for a long time, which is only super experts should be doing. I think they're, yeah, they're doing two things at the same time. Because Kyle was saying on the last episode was essentially like, you know, massive companies are like liability and compliance driven. They want to comply with laws. They don't want to get in trouble. So like they will do things ahead of laws coming out that they like if they think that right to repair is inevitable what they'll do is they'll set things up beforehand so they don't get the trouble but yep. at the same time they're not gonna actively promote a narrative that is like repair friendly and so i think they're doing they're right. basically walking that line of like allowing it and like you know saving their own hides but at the same time you know not not trying to make repair um right. you know like more popular or seem more accessible in and i can i totally i haven't seen the video uh that lewis put out but i think just like for kyle and lewis people that have been like fighting this yes but we will no no definitely and i think that like they're probably so impressed because they've seen where apple's been coming from you know like when you think about like you know kyle fixing that iBook back when he was in college versus now like Mm -hmm. that's night and day but i think the the vision that Mm -hmm. we're trying to push for is like even further than that so um all about perspective. Agreed. All right. Yeah. Um, the last story I have is about the um, legislation that's getting pushed through in the EU. And so the EU essentially has a period where they are reconciling laws between the, um, the EU Council and the actual parliament. So I won't actually get into like how the EU <laughs> governs itself does anyone understand how the I, they, EU works? No, like, I don't, every time, <laughs> there's like the European Commission, there's the European Parliament. When you have that I mean, many countries, sort of like... it's it's a mess. But essentially what it is, is there's two bodies uh, that they're trying to reconcile, like, you know, language between laws. Like, one, the EU Council is heads of state and the EU Parliament are like people that are voted in, um, you know, at general elections and stuff. Yeah. It's like they're legislature, right? EU legislators. So this is specifically uh, a piece that was in uh, Right to Repair Europe that was talking about, you know, um, legislation about batteries. And what they're finding is like, and what I really pulled away from the article was just that like the nuances of like institutions writing laws really changes. Like you can have a vision for what you want Right to Repair to be, but it needs to meet the reality of like the, the laws and like the governing structures and you need to be able to push laws through those structures and end up with like you know an end goal in mind so like in this case they want to have replaceable and repairable batteries but what they're finding is like some of the nuances of like how things move through committees or like how you reconcile reconcile language between these two bodies is pretty crazy and like it ends up really messy and so i think we see that when we're looking at you know bills dying in committee in um you know in state houses a lot of these ideas about right to repair, they're great. And like, I agree with a lot of them, but when the rubber meets the road and you actually need to create like tangible outcomes around right to repair, it has to get way less, um, you know, conceptual and way more tactical about how you approach these things. I also think that's why it argues in favor of, of not like narrowly scoping right to repair and just kind of creating sort of like the, the Magnuson Moss Warranty Act, you know, or something like that, of just sort of, you know, creating the right um, broadly and then leaving it to, you know, basically people to sort out, you know, okay, if we need exceptions or whatever, because like, obviously we, we you can't have, I mean, we're about to see a, a right to repair wheelchair law in Colorado, which is wonderful, but let's be honest, there are like 
10,000 or 50,000 different types of products out there potentially that could have separate right to repair laws. And we're not going to pass a right to repair law for up for all of them, right? So we it's a it's a problem that's a broad problem that needs a broad consumer right. Um and because like you said, once you start trying to do things on a more narrow basis, like, well, let's just have a battery replacement. And the nuances of language, like just depending on how you define certain things can have massive impacts on like, you know, what counts as replaceable, like what counts as like, you know, easily accessible, stuff like that. Like that can change, you know, how many batteries end up in a landfill by like tens of hundreds of thousands. So um, that's right. That's right. So this came up as well um, in the United States recently, just with uh, there was an effort by medical device manufacturers to try and push a change through Congress that was going to redefine remanufacturing, which is this term I wasn't even really that familiar with. But, you know, remanufacturing, basically kind of rebuilding medical devices to basically encompass most types of repair. Right. Um, And the and and basically that that failed because fortunately, you know, repair advocates, uh, medical repair um, proponents and and consumers groups got on it and said, you can't do this because otherwise you're going to make most types of repairs illegal. Um, But same exact thing, you know, kind of subtle change to a definition in obscure law that people don't pay that much attention to, but it can have a huge impact, you know, out there in the marketplace. Yeah. And so this right. is really different from what we're actually going to be uh, talking about today with Narav, which is, you know, he's kind of like a shiny yes. example of repair in the business community. And so they're a startup that is creating kind of this like super repairable laptop, very modular. And they launched this fall. We talked to Narav uh, this fall. And actually, recently, I think it was this past week, they launched their kind of like second model of the framework laptop. And so we talked to him about a lot of stuff, you know, the origin of the company, um, you know, how venture capital works and all that around repair. Yeah, it's a really fascinating interview. I mean, Narav talks about sort of particularly the the origin of framework of going to VCs in Silicon Valley and the sort of, you know, 2016, 2017 timeframe and say, hey, I want to do a startup. Uh, we're going to do a laptop startup and people being like, you know, dude, you're like 40 years too late. Uh but being like, no, 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 you know, like new idea this here. And, this is going to be different, you know. And in fact, you know, there is a market for this. And, and actually, obviously, got get, succeeded in convincing people to, to fund his his project. And now they've, they've just come out with the um, the uh, second version of Framework Laptop just in the, in the past couple of weeks. It's got some upgraded uh, processor and hardware, but still same kind of modular design. Um, so this is a conversation, just asterisk. We did this before the most recent release. Um, but uh, Nirav Patel, who is the founder and CEO of Framework Laptop, and um, really, really interesting conversation. Check it out. We're so happy to have you on um, as a uh, co-founder and CEO of uh, Framework. For our viewers and listeners who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about what Framework is and what, what you guys do. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Great to chat with you. Um, so at Framework, we're really trying to remake consumer electronics and to remake it in a model that is better for consumers and better for the environment. And really the core of that is basically respecting people and the planet by making products that are designed to last. Um, and critically by doing that, by making them repairable and upgradable and customizable by the end user to allow them to use it for as long as they'd like to. And you just came out with your first product, uh, which is a 13-inch 
uh, laptop. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So we just launched the Framework laptop earlier this year. I'm calling you from one, but here's just yeah. a, an example of one as well. Um, but this is, it's a thin and light 13 and a half inch notebook. It's, you know, it's high performance using Intel's latest CPUs. And really from, uh, you know, from a couple of feet away, it looks and feels and behaves like any other premium notebook. It's, you know, does all the things that you'd normally expect a notebook to do. But then when you need to, you can get inside of it and replace every part and every module uh, using a single screwdriver that we actually include in the box with every laptop. And this is this is one of those things like laptops are, are just everyday objects that, you know, I think most of us sort of take for granted and yet are incredibly, um, uh, you know, complex to actually manufacture and produce, as I'm sure you realize. Um, from a designer's um, perspective, what is what is involved in kind of not only manufacturing a laptop, a consumer laptop, but going a step further, which you did in really making it sustainable, modular, repairable? Like what what was involved in that? Did you start from the basis of existing consumer laptops and kind of work around that, or or did you really kind of start from a clean slate in, in, in terms of this, in terms of the framework? Yeah, sure. I mean, it helps a lot that laptops are just such a mature industry. You know, the designs and architectures have largely stabilized over the course of the last, you know, decade or 15 years, mm-hmm. where, you know, if you laid out a bunch of laptops from different brands and different years on a table, you know, most consumers wouldn't be able to tell you what the brand was or what, you know, chronological order they come in. And then that's, yeah. you know, it's sort of helpful for us. It means that um, <clears throat> we don't have to sort of make guesses as to what notebooks are, or what they're going to be in the next few years. We more or less no, they're going to be pretty similar to the notebooks that exist today. Um, and just, you know, coming from a background where, you know, my previous role, I was at Oculus um, architecting VR headsets. And that was, you know, obviously quite different where we had to start from a blank slate and sort of reset the design and architecture because we were advancing the technology so much. Um, so from that perspective, it was almost, a, you know, refreshingly straightforward to take this very mature category in notebooks and be able to, build it in a way that is more upgradable and more repairable than the existing products. And, you know, I'd love to say it was like this, you know, you know, an, an enormous mountain of design and, and engineering and architectural challenges we had to work through to make it, uh, you know, make it easy to repair, but actually it's, it's surprisingly straightforward. <laughs> it makes it, you know, that much more shameful, I guess, that so many consumer electronics products, even notebooks are not designed in a way that they are repairable. When we're talking about repairable, um, uh, what does that mean functionally? Like if everybody's familiar with a the laptop they've got probably sitting in front of them um, from a design perspective, what is it, what is it being repairable really mean? And could they tell by looking at it, I guess, that it's, that it's a more repairable uh, device? Definitely. I mean, I'd say there's sort of a handful of things that all go together. I mean, most critically actually is just having access as an individual consumer to replacement parts and upgrade parts where, you know, instead of needing to, you know, go dig deep into the gray market or find, you know, potentially used parts of questionable origin that you can actually get original quality parts directly from the brand, in our case, framework, of course, um, to be able to do that repair if you ever need to or do that upgrade if you ever need to. So that's, you know, sort of like the, you know, table stakes making that available. But then beyond that, we want to make it easy. We don't want to just make it available. And so, you know, some things that we've done is make sure to use fasteners instead of adhesives wherever possible. We've actually labeled everything 
inside of the notebook with a QR code and yeah. you know the, the name of the module, which is really helpful if you're, you know, especially if you're someone who's never been inside of a consumer electronics product before, um, being able to just take your phone out and scan a QR code and be able to get um, a pointer to, you know, step-by-step replacement guide, information on how to recycle it, information on, you know, where to get, uh, you know, an upgrade or replacement version, um, you know, or even being able to resell a, a part that you're taking out and don't need anymore. And and Framework is is managing that whole supply chain, as it were, that whole um, market for parts and so on, and and modules to add on to this. That's part of the part of the overall business model. Yeah, that's right. So we're setting up a marketplace, and the idea behind that actually is that we don't want it to just be us as Framework building and delivering these modules to the people we using Framework laptops. We actually want to engage third-party makers and sellers to be able to make that ecosystem of parts and replacement parts, um, you know, richer and more available to everyone. Um, Mm -hmm. And so just as an example, our expansion card system where, you know, all of the ports on the machine are actually these user selectable and swappable expansion cards uh, is a system that we've released as an open source design. And we're already seeing uh, quite a few interesting community developed or, uh, you know, small business developed designs that's going to just help enrich in that ecosystem. Very cool. Um, and I, I want to talk about those expansion ports because that is a really interesting feature of the, of the device. Um, so I know OEMs often, and let's just throw out one like Microsoft, um, often kind of couch um, some of their anti-repair or, um, features like gluing their devices together um, or having non-replaceable batteries, for example, as being driven by consumer demand. Like, well, consumers want really thin devices. And if you want it to be really thin, then you can't replace the battery or we've got to glue it together. We can't use screws. Um, was that your experience designing this? Um, that, that, that you know, again, uh, either consumers are, are driving you in a certain direction uh, or that there are, you know, that you have to make um, choices between design and, and repairability? Um, I mean, for the most part, no. I mean, we, we you know we're less than sixteen millimeters thick. We're, you know, the framework laptops actually, I think, 0.25 millimeters thicker than a thirteen-inch MacBook Pro, <laughs> which is you know totally not repairable or upgradable. Um, and so we found that you know we could shave off fractions of millimeters. We really sacrificed repairability and upgradability, but it was pretty obviously the right thing to do to actually just go and socket things and use fasteners instead of adhesives. And the actual form factor trade-offs are really not not that dire, not even that significant. Um, and so when we look at choices that other OEMs are making, it oftentimes comes down to a kind of, uh, you know, cargo cult mentality, you know, this idea that we do this because it's the way it's been done, or we do this because it's what we've seen other brands, you know, often Apple do, um, without really thinking through, like, is this necessary? Is this actually the right thing to do? Is this what consumers even want out of the products that we're making? So you mentioned you were at, you were at Oculus before you started Framework. Um, what got you interested in this concept of repair, having a repairable laptop? Obviously, a laptop, Oculus, cutting edge, consumer electronic, you know, three D vision. Um, you know, laptops, pretty much a commodity. Uh, so what what turned you on to that? Yeah, sure. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to the idea of consumer ownership. You know, the idea that when you pick up something like a laptop, this, you know, very advanced, important product in your life that you should be able to do what you'd like with it. It shouldn't be something that you're, you know, basically borrowing from a manufacturer on the way to the landfill. 
Um, and, and so it was really that, like the core of this was the, <laughs> the idea that, that, you know, it, it just feels obvious, but you know, that when we have, you know, as a consumer pick up a product like this, we should be able to upgrade it and repair it and customize it and make it do what we like it to do rather than only what the company that made it intended for it to do. Um, and on top of that, you know, over the last few years, especially I've you know, become increasingly aware, I think we've all become increasingly aware of the impact of e-waste and basically the environmental impact of consumer electronics and manufacturing as a whole. And the single best thing that we can do to help resolve that is make products last longer. So you need to make and dispose of fewer of them. So uh, Jason Kalkanis interviewed you on his podcast, video podcast, and he made a statement, which I don't know a lot about the VC industry, but just sounded true to me, which is, you know, going to a going to a VC in 2020 or 2021 and saying, you know, I want money to build a, a consumer laptop is probably a good way to get like your you know, thrown out, of sure. <laughs> thrown out of their office. It might be a hard sell to put it that way. It kind of had the ring of truth to me. Um, so was that your experience and, and how were you able to get, um, obviously making a laptop requires a tremendous amount of capital upfront. Um, how were you able to get investors to buy into this vision? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, oftentimes venture capitalists like to say that they're, you know, sort of ahead of the curve and pointing the world in the direction that it should be going in. But that, you know, that's probably not true very often. Um, in most cases, people, um, you know, are stuck, you know, due to the requirements of their LPs or the other partners at their firm to really be fairly conservative and really think about like, do I want to take a bet that has failed for us or failed for someone else in the past? And so for us as framework, you know, as a new consumer electronics brand, we're sort of in 2021, where we are today, um, you know, in the shadow of all these very high profile failures, like, you know, Essential and Juicero and all these other companies. And so just as a category, consumer electronics is very challenging. Um, but the thing that, that helps us a lot is that it's very, very obvious that there is consumer demand for this. You know, we see it every day when we, you know, look at our order numbers or look at the interest from people who, um, you know, we're reviewing the laptop or talking about the laptop as a, as a consumer. Um, and so being able to show actual consumer traction, of course, is the thing that ultimately, you know, venture capital or, or you know, other investment sources want to see. Um, so from that perspective, you know, the, the bootstrapping stage of like getting from, you know, zero new company to being able to launch an extremely complex and fairly expensive product is, of course, challenging. But we've, you know, done that. And now it's a matter of proving the consumer traction, which, which we're also doing. And in a design standpoint, I mean, how much of this was just finding the, you know, was there a lot of um, software development that that needed to happen to support this modular system? Um, or was it really just kind of finding the right design and the right component parts in the supply chain and bring them all together? Yeah, I mean, it's really a lot of industrial design and electrical architecture work sort of hand in hand coming up with the right way to make things modular. Um, and then on top of that, topic, so. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then we're doing, you know, some, some interesting things in, in firmware to also just make, um, you know, upgradability and repairability easy. Um, but in general, because notebooks are such a mature category, we do get to go into the supply base and pick, you know, all five companies that make all of the notebook batteries in the world or all the notebook displays or keyboards and so on and talk to all of them and, you know, tell our story and our mission and our philosophy and find the one that is, you know, the most technically competent and the most excited to actually go and try to address these issues with us. And so we've and got a great set of partners. Were they receptive to that, to that story when you went out and, and kind of pitched it to them? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, like everyone else, kind of going back to that cargo cult mentality challenge, um, you know, the initial reception, initial response was like, is, is that actually possible? I mean, no one, no one's done it that way. <laughs> like, surely you can't actually make it that thin. I mean, well, it's going to be, you know, uh, you know, an inch thick and, and, but step-by-step step we'd go and like talk through, okay, what are the actual design challenges? What about, you know, this idea or this other one? And we achieved really actually the almost exact spec that we set out a year and a half ago when we started the company. Really cool. So companies like Dell and HP, if you, if you kind of look at the spectrum of like hostile to repair, pro repair, I often see like, you know, Dell and HP is, you know, kind of more in the pro repair end of the spectrum in that they do make replacement parts available. They do sell service manuals with their stuff. And, you know, as opposed to, you know, Apple or something who's like, if you even open our laptop, you're violating our intellectual property, you know, like um, it, but I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Is, is that kind of a misconception? In other words, even though they make replacement parts available, even though they make service manuals and documentation available and diagnostic software, which is all great, are there ways in which in designing their laptops, let's say, um, actually they are kind of reproducing, you know, anti-repair, you know, um, uh, anti-patterns, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I think to a large extent, when you look at, you know, Dell or HP or Lenovo, they're driven by the needs of the cu- the most demanding customers they have, which are really their big enterprise customers, you know, the, the mm-hmm. companies buying, right. yeah, buying, you know, 10,000 or 20,000, you know, ThinkPads or, or XPSs or Precisions a year. Um, and, you know, oftentimes when they have their RFQ processes, it's, you know, show us your repair manual, show us your, you know, parts catalogs. Um, but it's, you know, in many cases, it's available to those large organizations in a way that it's not quite available to an individual consumer trying to buy, you know, an individual replacement part. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also not necessarily the case that, um, that especially for a consumer perspective, that these companies are being proactive about thinking about longevity. They're really thinking about how do I satisfy, you know, the RFQs or satisfy what Best Buy or Amazon needs for me when I, when I put this out in market. Um, so let's talk about these replaceable bays um, for the for the IO parts and and um, really interesting concept. I think all of us have had the experience of having to sort of twist cords around our laptops and like tug at cords because you know the the ports on the wrong side of the device. And in your in the in the framework laptop, these are really swappable. You can take them out on one side, put them in the other side. You can configure the ports really any way you want with these little plugins. Um, talk about that design decision and kind of what informed that and and what types of ports you you can choose from. Yeah, I mean, so it was sort of obvious from the outset that every consumer has a different set of needs when it comes to ports. Like, I'm sure you have a different set of ports that you need than I need. It's uh, it's just sort of inherent in that we are all just using our products in different ways. Um, and yet every single laptop has a set of ports that's fixed in place by the team that designed it. Um, and it just felt like a very, very low-hanging, obvious improvement that we could make. Uh, both to just generally improve the usability of the product, but also to really focus on that longevity, that if someone has a new peripheral that they want to use with their product, it shouldn't mean that they need to have this, you know, bizarre set of contraptions on the outside of their machine just to get that thing working. They should be able to adjust their machine and be able to plug in exactly the device that they want. Right. Yeah, those those $30 contraptions that you find yeah. almost immediately upon taking your thing out of the box. Um 
So, you know, in the in the PC laptop space, like there are there are many different niches, right? So, you know, if you're a gamer, there's the whole, you know, alienware box and other stuff that are really, you know, specific to gamers. I guess one question would be how does framework avoid becoming a niche product either for folks who are like, you know, the small segment of laptop owners who are DIY people or for the same people who are buying the like, you know, no plastic bottles cleaning service, you know, subscription that, you know, is getting delivered to their house. I mean, it's, you know, it's sure, it's yeah. great. And yet it's a really small, you know, segment of the overall um, buying population. So how do you avoid that, that destiny? Right. Yeah, I think that the two things that we really focused on there are one, making sure that it's just a great product that, uh, you know, really doing that side by side comparison against very popular notebooks like a Dell XPS or an HP Spectre or a ThinkPad, that the product stacks up well. And and we believe we've we've done well there in our reviews kind of uh, kind of show that. They sure um, do. And the other part. Yeah. And the other part of it is really that we're solving a very familiar problem. Every single consumer has had this experience of a device that's pretty functional, but has, you know, a screen that they cracked or they, their battery's wearing out or they've run out of storage space and they get stuck. Um, and we've all, you know, got our, our drawer of shame of, of dead devices that are just sitting there waiting for a disposal. Um, so from that perspective, we think, you know, that, that, um, the problem's very real and it's very obvious to consumers. And it's just that, that sort of moment of it clicking and, and being, you know, having people sort of understand and suddenly be aware that like, actually there is a solution for this. It doesn't actually have to be that if you've got a worn out battery, you have to go buy a whole new phone or a laptop or you crack your screen or you're, you know, you're stuck. It is actually the case that these products are repairable if they're, if they're designed to be from the beginning. Um, and so, you know, we think we've got a really great path ahead of us to be able to tell that story and for it to resonate. Have you, uh, obviously the Biden administration has come out in a very kind of, um, um, uh, outspoken way supporting right to repair and calling on you know the FTC and and others to promote this notion of repairability um, has that changed things for framework out there talking to uh, whether it's you know big box retailers or or other uh, vendors about your product uh, I think we just align you know happen to align perfectly in terms of the you know the FTC announcements around right to repair and Biden administration yeah. announcements actually happening exactly the week that we started shipping the product. Um, which we couldn't have, obviously we couldn't have timed that better. Um, but it definitely has just made the whole story around what we're doing that much, uh, that much more compelling and that, you know, people are awakening to the need for right to repair and the challenges around e-waste and immediately in front of them seeing, oh, there is, you know, there's actually a company here or a set of companies in different categories that are trying to address this problem. So, um, talk about how the, how it's been since the launch and, and, uh, how, how you're doing and, and what your goals are going forward. Yeah. So we've been doing incredibly well with the launch. We're very happy with the response and the, the sales throughput. Um, you know, we're selling them as quickly as we can make them and we're continuing to try to scale up our manufacturing to make, uh, make more as many, as quickly as we can. Um, and so from here, you know, we're in the U S and Canada, we know that right to repair and, and, um, you know, concerns about e-waste are, uh, you know, a major concern in Europe as well. That's somewhere that, um, you know, especially in France with their repairability score that they just launched, but also the rest of the EU, um, and the UK, um, that's, uh, an area that we're going to be launching into soon. Um, we're also launching into a lot of the major markets in East Asia where, you know, similarly have 
pretty serious programs around e-waste and um, reducing environmental harm. Um, and we, of course, are continuing to expand our ecosystem around the framework laptop, you know, additional expansion cards, uh, you know, future other modules to, uh, to make available. You think of moving beyond the laptop to other types of uh, devices? Yeah, I mean, the problems that we're solving here really apply to almost any part of consumer electronics. Or, you know, you can look at any of the devices around you and see the same problems repeated just about everywhere. And so the uh, the opportunity certainly exists. And for us, it's really a question of uh, of sequencing in a way that makes sense. Um, do, you, do you feel like you like one of the things that could change the dynamics would be some, you know, kind of governments, whether it's a U.S. government, Canadian government, you know, EU, not stepping into the market, but maybe pricing in, you know, the environmental cost of disposable electronics in a way that changed buyer behavior. I, I do think so. I think there are ways to, um, for regulations to really help here, help consumers, especially make good decisions. And I think what yeah. is uh, is happening in France is actually a great example of this, you know, having a zero to 10 score, similar to iFixit's repairability score, uh, right next to the price tag of every laptop and smartphone and a few other categories. And consumers can see right there, like here's, you know, two or three different notebooks. They all look interesting. And this one's got, you know, five out of 10. And this one's got a nine out of 10. I think I'll, you know, get the more repairable one. Yeah. Because that cost of repairability or lack thereof is really kind of secretly could be the most significant you know, feature that, that, uh, you need to consider as a buyer, right. Um, whether absolutely one, yeah. one component breaking means the end of this device or not, you know, um, final question for viewers, listeners, how can they own one of these? What do they need to do? Sure. Yeah. You can go to frame.work and our pre-orders are currently open in the U S and Canada. If you're outside of the U S and Canada, you can uh, drop in your email address and we'll shoot you a note as soon as we launch in your country. Nirav, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I guess one question I, that, that we often get is, you know, are we worried about Dell or HPO or Lenovo trying to, <laughs> trying to do the same thing and come after us? Um, and I think, you know, for, for that, it's, it's really a, you know, rising tide lifts all ships kind of scenario. We, you know, we would love to see um, bigger companies embrace the right to repair in a serious way. We you know, believe that our focus in addition to repair on being able to upgrade and customize deeply um, still resonates well with consumers. Um, and of course, that's also just what we want to see. We want to see, you know, less e-waste piling up around the world. So we'd love to see more big companies jump in. I totally agree. And and um, it's so great talking to you. And thank you so much for, for doing this. I mean, I know it's not purely altruistic, but I mean, I think a really important product and a really important trend in, in consumer electronics. So Nero Patel, Framework, thank you so much for coming in and, and speaking to us, and thanks for everything that you do. 